today we're going to have communion following our service. And I've titled this message, The Eucharist. Now, we don't use Eucharist, do we? When we're talking about communion, we say the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. And there's a reason why I chose to title it the Eucharist. Uh, it's a term that other traditions use. We don't use it as much in our fellowship. But there's some profound implications in communion in the Eucharist, in the Passover meal. We're going to go, you can go through all the four Gospels, and we're going to touch a little bit on John and Mark. And so get your Bibles handy. We're going to uh, jump around this morning. And if you have your devices there, you can follow along there. Um, Jesus had his last Passover meal with his 12 apostles. We're going to touch on that. We're going to look at that. And when you go through all those narratives from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John's an interesting uh, gospel because he doesn't record the breaking of the bread and the passing of the cup. Matthew, Mark, and Luke records that. And Paul, who's kind of like a later arriver to that Passover meal, writes in 1 Corinthians 11 what Jesus said over the cup and what he said over the bread. But John is interesting in that he has the largest description of that meal, but it's not hardly any of the, is about the meal. Most of it is what he's talking to them about. And most of it, it happens at the end of the meal. Uh, he washes their feet, and then he talks about all of these different analogies that they and him fit together. Um, we know the history of Passover, of, of the communion meal is Passover. It's Exodus chapter 11. If you want to read that, that is the Passover. That's the last plague that God uses to deliver his people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. That last plague was the death of the firstborn. If you read it, it's not just the firstborn of families, but it's the firstborn of, of animals, of cattle. And so he said, I'm going to pass through the land that night. This is God himself doing this, Yahweh. I'm going to pass through the land, and those homes do, that do not have blood on the doorpost and on the lintel of the door, they're going to lose their firstborn. But those who have the blood, this is how they get the word Passover. He said, I will pass over those dwellings, and that plague will not touch the people inside that home. The actual term that they use for this festival is not Passover, it's what? Feast of unleavened bread. Pesach is another word for Passover, but it's actually, and this is like the first festival that's established. This is way before Moses gets the, the law of Mount Sinai. God establishes, and he tells him, he says, this is to happen at this point of the year, Every year for seven days, this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days, you're not to eat any bread with leaven in it. And on the seventh day, they're supposed to have the meal with the lamb and the, and the bitter herbs and the salt water and all of that that goes into the Passover meal. But it actually is a week-long celebration. Interesting that during that week-long celebration, Jesus stops at Mary and Martha's house one day and Mary, this is Passover. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread that's being celebrated. Mary comes in with its expensive uh, canister of perfume. And I'll, I'll just put it in context. It says that it was worth about a year's wages. So if you earn $30,000 a year, this perfume would cost $30,000. 
And so she pours it out on Jesus as this, uh, uh, really an anointing for his death. She's prophetically moved to do that. She, they have this for a particular reason, usually for family burial. This is like their, part of their burial plan. And it's just used sporadically. It's not, but she turns a whole canister over on Jesus. Can you imagine the aroma that filled that house? But here's Judas seeing this, and he complains, openly complains. This is such a waste. He sees money pouring over Jesus. And he says, we could have sold that. You could have sold that. You poured it over him. You could have sold it and given it to the poor. John is writing this, I think it's in chapter 12. And John says, he didn't really care about the poor. We found out later he was stealing. He was a thief. He carried... He was the treasure for the discipleship group. And he was only wanting to have some of the proceeds. Well, it goes back. What happens at Passover goes back further than Exodus 11. It actually goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And let me explain what happens there and why what we're about to have celebration of is connected to Genesis 3. I'll explain it for a few things. If you... If you've never seen Mel Gibson's uh, movie, The Passion of the Christ, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've never seen it, but some, everybody ought to see it at least once. For me, I really don't have a desire to see the whole film again. It, it was, even when I saw it in, in the big screen, I finally just put my hands, I couldn't take watching any more of the scourging. It, just, it reached the point that I just couldn't watch it. But there's a scene in the early part of that movie that I'm going to show you in just a moment. Now, Mel Gibson, I want, to, I want to qualify this. Mel Gibson takes a lot of literary license in this movie. There's a lot of things he does that's not in the biblical text. And, and this, is, this, is, this is kind of like one of those scenes where he's like, I don't know if that was really the way that happened. But the scene is Jesus in Gethsemane, and he's under great duress. He's praying. He's asking the Father if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He's, he's under such stress that medical doctors say the stress was breaking some capillaries in his face and, and scalp, and he began to sweat, not just sweat, but sweat and blood. That's how much stress he was under at this point. So I want you to see this because this really connects us to Genesis 3. So here it is.
Now, this is the verse that really all of this is a fulfillment of. Genesis 3.15 is really referred to as a pro-evangelium. It is the first mention of the good news. When Adam and Eve fell and they were hiding from God because they realized they were naked and they did not want to be in the presence of God, and you know the story, God calls them. He wants them. He, he knows where they're at. He calls them, and they declare that they're hiding from him. And he asks why, and then it, whole, the whole thing unfolds. He already knows what had happened. He, he knew what had happened. So when, when they begin to explain, when Adam and Eve started telling them, well, you know, Adam put it on Eve. She, was, she gave it to me, and she said, well, the serpent... And in that reverse order, God begins to judge each of the participants. And he judges first the serpent. Then he pronounces the consequences on Eve. And then he pronounces the consequences on Adam. He holds all of them responsible. Then he makes a covering for Adam and Eve. But when he's talking to the serpent, this is what he says to the serpent. I will put enmity. And it's not just not a, a division. I think... And by the way, when you watch the Passover, the, the Passion of the Christ, it's all in Aramaic, which is true to the language of what probably what Jesus and all of them used commonly was Aramaic. But God told the serpent, there's coming a day when I will solve what happened here. What I, will, what I, I will solve what happened in the Garden of Eden in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was, there's two gardens and Satan is involved in both of them. Now, the depiction of the character of Satan, you know, I think that's just for literary uh, emphasis. But he said, I will put hostility between you and the woman. And, and interesting, um, it says between your offspring and her offspring, the actual word is seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So the seed, the offspring of the woman, he didn't say the offspring of Adam, is automatically you're starting to see that God has chosen a woman at some point in history to bring the promised one into the, our, our world who would undo what happened in the Garden of Eden. Now, Satan was involved in this whole thing. You remember when Jesus handed a piece of bread, dipped in some sauce to uh, Judas and says, you'll do what you're supposed to do. What does it say about Judas? It said at that point, Satan entered into the heart of Judas. And we just wonder how much Satan was influencing him at that time because this was all being planned. He was already talking to the hierarchy of the Pharisees and, and the high priests and all of them. And he'd already made a decision to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. The problem was he was always surrounded by a bunch of people, usually, if not a bunch of people, at least his disciples. And so it comes down like this. Not only does Judas leave that meeting, he, does, he doesn't seem to be there for the cup and the bread. That's kind of interesting. He does not participate in that. He leaves, and he's on a mission. He's not going to turn back now. He's dedicated to this, uh, selling Jesus out, and he knows exactly where they're going to pray, he takes his entourage of the temple police there, and it's, it is hard to figure out who is who in the, a darkened area of olive trees. And he says, I will tell you who he is. I will go up and greet him with a kiss, which is a Middle Eastern greeting. 
And Jesus says, you're going to betray me with that, with a greeting? And so it was on. And he did so with a it is It is possible that Judas could kiss the, the gate of heaven and not get in. He could be that close to Jesus really was and miss it. Boy, that ought to be a warning for us, shouldn't it? But I want to touch on three points this morning. The first one is the language of covenant. What communion celebrates is a new covenant. And Jesus even uses that word covenant in describing the role of his blood or the cup. I want to take you to Mark chapter 14. This is one of the occasions where it's recorded what Jesus said when he was giving them the bread and the cup. Going back to the Gospels. Now, mind you, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this, as does Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. But we're going to pick it up in Mark 14. We could pick any of the other three out as well. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. This is verse 22. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, take, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said this, this is the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In verse 23, I might have put Eucharisteo, which is where we get the word Eucharist. Eucharisteo is the verb meaning to give thanks or to pronounce gratefulness. Uh, U is a word for well. Christes is really kind of related almost to grace or being grateful. So it is when he was giving thanks... He was actually doing this, Eucharisteo. He was giving, he was expressing gratefulness. Interesting that when Jesus arrived at this last Passover, now this Passover, they probably had two other Passovers before this annually, but this one was different. They noticed that he was different. Um, And when he got up to explain what was going on, he says, I really look forward to this. I couldn't wait to get to this point. As stressed as he's going to be that night, he said, this is what it's all about. This is why I came. This is the moment. And he says, I'm establishing a new covenant. Why some, of the, why some fellowships call it the Eucharist, this is why you, you see they call it, they observe it sometimes every Sunday. We, don't, we probably need to observe, observe it more than we do. But some do it every Sunday. As such, a communion or a fellowship may see the Eucharist as confession and absolution. Have you heard those two terms? Confession and absolution. It's uh, when you take the Eucharist, when you take the elements of communion, the priest or minister serves the elements, and some believe that it actually transfers into the very blood and the very body of Christ. We don't, we don't believe that no more than we believe that when Jesus gave them the bread, it actually became his flesh. Even though he said, what didn't he say to the bread? This is my body. This is my body broken for you. Obviously, he wasn't peeling anything off from himself to put there. He was using bread to say, this is going to be a covenant symbol. Now, some disagree with that, but this, you know, there's only, there's only, I know that, Andrew. I figured you'd help me out there. I'm not going to, no, no. I'm not going to offer any criticism other than this. I've been in a church service 
I've, I've been in services where this kind of uh, discipline was exercised. I've, I've sat in services where um, there was confession and absolution, and usually it took you by rows, um, and one person administers the elements at the altar, and, and a row will come, and they will serve them all, and they will confess, and he will absolve them of their sins. And it goes row by row. I don't have any criticism of that. I really don't. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not picking on any f- discipline. But as I sat there, I looked in the bulletin, and I was disqualified from participating. Because it clearly said in the bulletin, if you are not a confessant of this particular synod, of this, I'm not going to say what kind of church, of this particular discipline, we ask that you not participate in the Eucharist. So that was fine with me. And I had people that I was sitting in the row with them that was their church. And it wasn't uncomfortable for me to sit there, but I realized it was uncomfortable for them to get up and walk, and I'm the only one sitting in the row. So I could tell as they were going up, as the whole family was going up, they were looking back at me and I didn't wave at them or anything. <laughs> but I sit there wondering, I says, why is my own personal confession of Christ not count? Not that it didn't hurt my feelings, really. It did not hurt my feelings. I respected what they're doing. That is their discipline. I'm in their service. I'm in their church. I honor that. I respect that. You know, we don't do it that way. That's what you call a closed communion. And there's some Protestant churches that have closed communion. If you're not a member of the church, they sometimes make it known that, that you're, you're not to participate. If you're not part of our fellowship here, uh, a, member, a member here, we, we ask you not to partake of this. We're not like that. We're an open communion, meaning if, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're, you're in the church. You're in the church. You're in the church that matters. You're, you're part of his kingdom, part of his body. So that's why we have an open communion. And we just ask people to, to, to take it if they are committed to the Lord, if they have followed Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I want to jump to the next thing I want to talk about, and that is the implication of the covenant. The language of the covenant is interesting. That Jesus was grateful for the bread and grateful for the cup, and he's pronounced these blessings over both of them. In fact, there was four times the cup was picked up and he would speak a blessing over it and it would be passed around. Most people believe that the cup that we're reading about is the fourth, the cup of completion. But what are the implications of the covenant? And I don't want to make this too lengthy because I want us to have time for communion. Um, I think this is where we miss some of the profound implications of communion. He breaks the unleavened loaf. Now, what we have, uh, I, I have went forward when the common cup was being used. And I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not a confessing germaphobe, but I really don't want to drink after somebody else. And I carry hand sanitizer, and I'm like, ah, don't touch me. You know, especially if you're coughing, don't touch me. Don't get around me. But, you know, they're, they're wiping the lid on. It's like, well, you're using the same wipe. You know, it's like, <laughs> what is that? You're supposed to use a different wipe every time. But in, in, their, in their culture, it was one loaf of matzah. 
It was one loaf of bread, unleavened bread. And when he broke that piece off, he handed that one piece to them, and they broke some off of the same loaf. See, we miss that because that loaf is him. That loaf is who he is. He identifies. He said, this, is, this loaf is my body. Break off and take it to make us one, to make us whole, to join us together. And there's, a, there's more to it than that. That's why the cup, the common cup, was one cup. It was all of you will have a cup, a separate cup, and we kind of do it that way so that nobody gets the flu here, Okay. But when they passed the cup around, it was to show that Jesus was the whole of the cup. And every drink they took from the cup was a drink of him. It was connecting the whole group to him and that they would all be one. But think about this. When he said, this is my body broken for you, he was talking about what was going to happen that night and the next day. Like I, I, I see things on Mel Gibson's movie, and, and there, might be a, there might come a day when I will watch the whole thing again. But it is, I don't think anybody can improve upon depicting the kind of beating Jesus got. When he said, this is my body broken for you, that, that's a simple word, but it can never express what happened to him that night. The extreme, the horrific, the unconscionable, treatment of him to beat him within an inch of life but not to kill him it was in, to put as much suffering on him as possible and he was saying i want you to take this and join me in my suffering i want you to join me in my suffering that's why paul said that i might know him and the power of his resurrection and the koinonia, the fellowship, the communion of his suffering, being made conformable to his death, that we join with him in his death. We join. This not, it's not something we're like, oh, I can't wait to suffer with Jesus. We don't probably say that. But as, as we were singing this song, is that we're with him. We're with him in his victories. We, when we suffer for him, he smiles on that. When we suffer for him, he smiles on that. And then he tells them, this cup, this is my blood that is going to be poured out. And here's, here's, here's two terms that comes to my mind in John 15. We're going to read from John 15 here in just a moment on the implication of uh, covenant. It might be already up here. I don't know if I put that up there or not. But um, when, when he gets to this point in, in John 15, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And he goes on and on about how that's supposed to work. Life is in the vine, and if you're connected to me, if the flow of me is coming into you, you will bear fruit. And some places where you're not bearing, God's going to prune that off so that you will bear fruit. He, he is talking about being conformed to the vine, not the branch asking the vine to be conformed to the branch. Are you following me? He's actually saying, Partner with me. Come into covenant with me. Take this bread. Become part of me. Take this cup. Become part of me. Be in covenant relationship with me. In John 15, 18, he says, this is what waits you. And, and very few of us would take a job if somebody told us that these would be part of the consequences if you work for this company 
people will hate you. They hate us, they'll hate you. People hate our company. I want you to come to work for us. But Jesus is telling them, I'm the vine, you're the branches, so get ready. This is verse 18. If the world hates you, John 15, 18, vine and branches. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, the world would love you because it would love its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. That's such a great pitch to come and join me. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. He does not sell them on this by candy coating their future. He tells them straight up, the same people that came after me, they're coming after you. They hated me because I'm light and I'm truth and they don't want anything to do with light and truth. If you're light and if you're truth, if you pattern yourself after me, people are not going to like you. There's some people that's not going to like you. They will not like you being a contrast to their lives. Jesus was the contrast. He was light and he even said people hate the light and they love darkness more than light because their deeds are evil. They don't want light shining on their their condition. He said, they would, you would suffer. You'll share in the cost of this covenant. And they should not be surprised by suffering or even death. In Luke 9.23, he says to them this. And we're going to go to the last uh, promise of covenant here in just a moment. He said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, take up his willingness to suffer daily and follow me. Whoever will save his life will lo shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man of advantage if he gains the whole world and loses himself or be a castaway? What have you accomplished if you become the branch that is dead and the life of the vine is not pouring into you? Here is... Uh, this promise of covenant, and, and if the praise team can come up, because this is going to be a brief statement. Here is where I think, I think some people want to have an arrangement of being associated with Jesus and not attached to him. They want to be in the discussion. They want to point to heaven and maybe give any implication that they believe in God and they be, even believe in Jesus, but they're they don't want anything to do with his lordship. They want him as savior, but they don't want him running their lives or telling them what to do. They want to do what they want to do. And I want to tell you, that person is not born again. A person who is born again has a heart to follow the Lord. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy, but you, you have at least a heart to follow the Lord. You don't want to camouflage yourself. You don't want to say, well, when I'm with this group of people, I'm going to be this way. But when I'm over here, I'm, I've got religious language that I can use over here. I'll just, you know, I, I'll just have to fit in over here. That person is not born again. A born again person is one who has a clear understanding of the covenant that Christ establishes through his blood and his broken body. And he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you're truly, if you're truly attached to me, my life will flow into you and your life will be different. 
It'll have different fruit. There'll be life in there. That doesn't mean that you won't have struggles against certain things. We all have the battles that we fight to overcome ourselves and our own temptations. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a mindset. The promise of the covenant is this, that this covenant is not just for now, it's for eternity. There's this little line in 1 Corinthians 11, and if the, and if the men who are serving the elements can also get in place, I might have should have said that. So all you guys that are helping us serve. There's this one little line in 1 Corinthians 11 where he says, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes. There's a sense of longing in communion. Longing not for us to have it here and him there, but for us to be there and have it with him. He said, I will not have communion with you. I will not have Passover with you. He said that specifically in Mark. I will not have this with you again until the kingdom of God is established. But what a communion service that's going to be. When not a fragment of the body of Christ, but the entire body of covenant people of God, from every tribe and nation, all languages, every conceivable point of the earth where someone confessed Christ as Lord and Savior, we're all going to be in that one great celebration of this communion. And part of our expectation is when we take the bread and take the cup and have a longing to be there. A longing to be there. Someone did a depiction of George H.W. Bush in heaven with his wife and their three-year-old daughter that died of leukemia. And it just put chills on me when I saw it. It's not biblical, okay? He lands his World War II plane in the clouds and they all just have a little celebration. But it is a great caricature. I get it. I think there's a longing in us for that day. We're, we're no longer constrained here by our own limitations. We long, in fact, the whole earth groans and wants to throw off the curse of sin. The earth groans to be free of the curse that's on it. And our communion this morning is part of that promise that when we eat this bread, here's, here's what I'd like for you to think about when we take the cup and the bread here in just a moment. That you're in union with Jesus. And the bread does represent his body. There's, there's more to it than I think symbolism. But we, we kind of don't go that far. But as they position themselves, we're going to serve you in just a moment. That you think about your union with him, your commitment to him, you're in covenant relationship with him. And 
also to say, Lord, I'm so eager to be with you.